0: Will you please stand again and turn with me, I'm changing the New Testament reading again, I'm sorry, but uh, let's read from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 instead of Ephesians 6. 2 Corinthians 4, we'll read verses 7 through 11, and then our sermon text will be Psalm 60. Let's ask for God's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. May you use this time of the reading and preaching of the scriptures to build up your people in Christ, to work faith and repentance in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, through the glory of your name. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 11. But we have this treasure in jars of clay For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Amen. Let's turn to Psalm 60. To the Choir Master, according to Shushan Aduth, a miktam of David, for instruction when he strove with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. O, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give us salva- Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Amen. You may be seated. My parents' wedding anniversary is June 14th. June 14th is also the lesser-known patriotic holiday, known as Flag Day. I don't know if any of you knew that or even were aware that there is such a thing as a Flag Day. But um, it, Flag Day, as it turns out, marks the anniversary of June 14, 1777, when Continental Congress passed the Flag Act of 1777, which said, it's short, I promise, it goes like this, resolved that the flag of the 13 United States be 13 stripes, alternate red and white, that the Union be 30 stars, Thirteen stars, surely, is what I meant to write there. Sorry. Uh, white in a blue field, representing a new constellation. It's a pretty neat uh, way to put it. Yes, definitely thirteen stars. Um, anyway, so what was happening there was the colonies were no longer colonies, right? They were now states, united in one new country. And to mark this what they needed was to be united under one new flag that they would all share. A flag, importantly, among other things, that the Continental Army would carry into battle. They would fight under that banner. You Imagine the significance, the symbolism of that new banner for the people, especially for the soldiers of that new American country during that very pivotal time in history. It was a symbol that united them that inspired them, that they could rally around, importantly, both in victory and in defeat, as they strove together for that goal of freedom and independence. Now, people in the ancient world uh, didn't use flags, per se, like modern flags, but they still did have ways of having symbols, standards, banners of various kinds that could have a similar kind of function in a battle, right? especially in battle. And um, in this psalm, the Lord, it says, lifts up a banner for those who fear Him, and that is a banner that unites them, that inspires them, and that they can rally around both in victory and in defeat. So let's look at this psalm in three parts tonight. First is going to be the turn of the tide, verses 1 through 5. Second will be how God replied, verses 6 through 8. And then third, on the Lord's side, verses 9 to 12. So the the turn of the tide, how God replied, and on the Lord's side. Okay, to start with, you might think when you read this psalm that there's kind of a mismatch um, that you're sensing between the heading of the psalm and the opening three verses. The heading mentions some of David's great victories soon after he became king of Judah. These, these major victories against Syria and Edom, uh, they're described in 2 Samuel <laughs> chapter 8. These are some of the victories that really established David's uh, dominance as a uh, very powerful and successful king of Israel. Uh, building towards a period of peace and stability and security for Israel under David's leadership by the grace of God. Verses 1 through 3 seem to be reflecting a very different kind of situation where Israel has gone through a series of really bad defeats, apparently. And so you think, wait a second, how do these fit together? Well, I think that the answer is that verses 1 through 3 are describing what things were like for Israel before David won those victories the period of time that David is leading the people out of. Because before David started winning all these victories on on Israel's behalf, think about what had just been the case just prior to that under King Saul. How does the book of 1 Samuel end? 2 Samuel sees David rise finally to the throne over all Israel. 1 Samuel ends with a complete rout of Israel's armies by the Philistines, when Israel was under the leadership of King Saul. And you remember how King Saul and three of his sons, including David's very close friend, Jonathan, all are killed in that battle. It is an absolute disaster. It does not get any worse than that when it comes to a military defeat for Israel. This is a time in Israel's history where surely it made sense to pray and say, oh God, you have rejected us broken our defenses. You've been angry. And, and the Lord was indeed angry with King Saul, isn't he? because of his rebellion, because he refused to submit his heart to the Lord. But now under David, the prayer is, Lord, can things be different now? Oh Lord, restore us. Repair the breaches in the land. The land is tottering. You've made your people see hard things. They've had to drink that cup of judgment and it's made them stagger. Whoa. So this psalm is really about what we might call an inflection point in Israel's history. It's about the turn of the tide. and That's our first point tonight, of course. But before David talks about that turn, he first lays down for us here very vividly the devastating, humbling, hard truth about the state that he found Israel in when he ascended the throne. And actually, that opening lament um, has a significance for us that I want to. I don't want to just rush past this. This lament of Israel's prior defeats is an important part of Israel's devotional life, an important part of Israel's worship. It's an important part also of the devotional life of the church and of us as individual Christians to remember and to cry out to God about those very heavy and disastrous moments in our lives and in our stories. Not to forget them. Christianity is not a happy-go-lucky religion that just pretends like all the bad things didn't happen, so we can be cheerful all the time. I thought Matthew Henry had some really great application here for us, so I'm just going to pass it straight on to you from him. He gives three reasons Three reasons for remembering and reflecting on those past seasons of difficulty and pain and defeat and disaster in our lives. The first one, he says, is to humble us. To humble us. And I hope that makes you think about the morning sermon, which we're going to do several times tonight. It's amazing how these things fit together sometimes. But thinking about those past hard times reminds us of the lessons that we learned through those hard times so that we don't forget them. And so that we will stay humble by the grace of God when things start to go better. Because, of course, as sinners, our natural tendencies, when things start to go well, we sort of forget being humbled and we start to think that maybe we're better now, stronger, not as dependent on the Lord as he once proved to us. We mustn't forget God's mercies when things are going badly, of course. But we also mustn't forget our weakness and our need and our vulnerability when things start to go well. This is a reason for us to remember those times of defeat. A second reason we need to do this is so that we will better appreciate the blessing of God bringing us out of those hard times. So we won't forget that. So we'll worship him for it. Our calamities, Matthew Henry says, serve as foils to our joys. Our calamities serve as foils to our joys. A foil is like a a contrasting example that helps us to see the opposite thing more clearly. Our calamities serve as foils for our joys. We're led to worship the Lord for his deliverance from those hard times. And then the third thing, reflecting on past hard times is important, he says, because we never know when they may come again. We never know when they may come again. There's an old song you may have heard called, Hard Times Come Again No More. And it wisely begins, let us pause in life's pleasures and count its many tears. And the chorus sings, many days you have lingered around my cabin door. Oh, hard times come again no more. It's that longing for them to stay in the past. But of course we know that they won't always do that. The fact is that hard times very well may come again in the providence of God, and that should not catch us by surprise. And so the point here is that there's wisdom in reflecting on God's faithfulness to us through the hard times in the past so that we will not despair, so that we will not be shaken. Think about the hymn that says, the changes that are sure to come I do not fear to see. Even if their heart changes. Okay. So first David looks back on that defeat. But he also recognizes with faith that God is doing something different now. His prayer in verse 5 for the future is based on on his statement about the present in verse four, something that is already true, that he's confident in. So when he asks what he asks God to do in verse five grows out of something he knows that God has already done, you have set up a banner. You have set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow. And notice that this banner is not yet leading the people victoriously forward. Into battle. This is something Derek Kidner points out. This is actually a banner to help the people retreat. Remember, I talked about a flag is what the army can rally to not only when it's advancing, but also when it's retreating, not only in victory, but also in defeat. And in fact, that can be one of the most important times so that that retreat did not become a rout, did not become a panic and chaos. It's a place for the army to turn it Says Here we know we can reassemble and be united. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. Of course, that orderly strategic retreat is often the first necessary step before what? Before that grand advance, which pushes the enemy back the other way. And both of those things are going to be possible only because the Lord has provided a banner for Israel. So we might ask, well, what is this banner exactly? Well, we could start by saying, and I don't think this would be wrong, we could start by saying that it's the Lord himself. And um, in thinking about that, you might think back to Exodus chapter 17. There's a great victory Israel wins soon after the Exodus, actually, against the Amalekites, the one where uh, Aaron and Hur have to hold up Moses' hands. And as long as his hands are held up, Joshua leads the army victoriously in battle. And after that victory, Moses builds an altar, and he calls it, The Lord is my banner. Same word. So who is Israel's banner? What is Israel's banner? The Lord is Israel's banner. He is the one they can flee to from the bow. And yes, so you could say it's in the deepest sense, the Lord himself who unites Israel under his covenant, under his name, under his power and authority. And it's, it's God who leads them in battle himself as their heavenly king. It's also true, though, that the Lord has just given Israel a new banner in a different sense. Matthew Henry argues that that banner is actually King David. King David is this new banner that's being spoken of here. Now, you might think, oh, are you sure, that seems like a little bit of a stretch. Where do you get that from? I don't see how you could really show that David is the banner. Well, there is another place we can go that I think makes it clearer, and that is in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah, why are we going to Isaiah? Well, listen to this. In Isaiah chapter 11, the Lord speaks there of a coming day when the root of Jesse, Jesse's David's father, of course, is talking about David's family, someone from David's family, the son of David, is going to stand as, well, the ESV says a signal, but it's the same Hebrew word, banner. It's going to stand as a banner for the peoples. And under that banner, verse 12 of Isaiah 11 says, God is going to assemble the banished of Israel. And he's going to gather the dispersed of Judah from the ends of the earth. Under this banner. The root of Jesse. This new leader from the family of David. And So if in Isaiah, the banner is from David's family. The root of Jesse. I think that's a very strong reason for seeing the banner here in Psalm 60. Also as David. Uh, as David himself, as God's anointed king, raised up as the savior and deliverer for the nation. It's under David that Israel is going to be united. First, they're going to flee to him to reassemble, to reorganize, after all of the misery of defeat under King Saul. But that's not going to be the end, because then what are they going to do? They're going to start advancing under David's leadership until God gives him rest from all his enemies all around, Second Samuel 7 says. And through David, God is going to give that rest to Israel. Okay? Now from there, it's a very short step in light of Isaiah to see how this particular part of the psalm points us so clearly then to the Lord Jesus Christ, our king, the son of David, right, who leads us, who unites us, who defends us, who wins our victories, who brings us to peace and safety after all of the defeat and the tragedy and the devastation that we've brought on ourselves through our sin. What a great picture this gives to us of God raising up Christ as our banner. Christ is our banner. And it's through him that we can pray then, verse 5, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, just as at the right time God sent David to lead Israel. But now he had sent an even greater leader. The coming of Christ was the turn of the tide of all of history, not just of one short epoch in the national life of Israel turn of the tide. The coming of Christ, our banner. Well, that brings us in the second place to verses 6-8. through eight, How God replied. God has spoken in his holiness. With exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Sukkoth. Those are cities within Israel's territory in two different regions though. One's on the West of the Jordan, one's on the east of the Jordan. So he's kind of moving around in geography here to, to show a wide region to take in a lot of land. Um, then um, uh, that straddling of the Jordan River continues then in verse seven, Gilead is mine. That's on the east side of the Jordan. Manasseh is mine. Manasseh had some territory on both sides. Ephraim is my helmet. That's the west side of the Jordan up to the north. And Judah is my scepter. That's the west side of the Jordan, but down in the south. And Judah, of course, is David's tribe, the royal tribe, and that's why Judah is holding the scepter. Then in verse 8, he turns from Israel, which he's king over, to uh, Israel's surrounding enemies. He says, Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Uh, There's no secret meaning there. It is just what it sounds like. It's talking about this lowliness, this humiliation of these enemy nations. God's going to use them like a wash basin. He's going to cast his shoe on them. Um, Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. So God's sovereignty, his authority, his power are comprehensive here. They take in... All of Israel, yes, but not just all of Israel. They take in all of Israel's enemies, too. To the northeast, Moab. To the southeast, Edom. And to the west, the Philistines. Again, I hope you can hear these similarities with Zephaniah 2 this morning. How he was moving around those different points of the compass, you remember, and dealing with some of these same nations. uh, Moab to the east and the Philistines to the west. Um, Again, I, I love it when these things match up morning and evening did not plan that out, but there it is again, the same kind of thing going on geographically. One thing I want you to notice here is how God-centered verses 6 through 8 are. I mean, you can just look at the pronouns that are used, right? Um, There's I, mine, mine, my, 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 I, my, and I, all referring to the Lord. None of this... It's about what David is going to do or about what Israel is going to do. This is all about what God is going to do for them. This is all about who God is. It's about God's ownership of and sovereignty over his people and their foes. It is the Lord who is on the throne, ultimately the throne of heaven. And he is ruling and defending Israel and restraining their enemies. Nothing is outside of his control. And that is why Israel can rest. That is why Israel can trust. That is why Israel can be safe and secure and confident even after a severe defeat and tragedy under Saul. They can rest, they can trust, they can be secure and confident in knowing that God is with them, that God is for them, and if God be for us, then who can be against us? That's what God is reassuring them about in this psalm. So we've talked about the turn of the tide. We've just seen how God replied to David's prayer. Now let's finish with verses 9 to 12 on the Lord's side. We're back now to David's voice. David has heard God's declaration of his sovereignty and, and ownership. And now David is being mobilized as the king. To go out and to act in accordance with that deep reality that he's just been describing, recognizing. Um, I like something Derek Kidner had to say here. He said this, quote, It is one thing to glory in the might of God, another to venture forth in it. It is one thing to glory in the might of God, another to venture forth in it. That's what David is being called to do here, is being called to venture forth in faith and act upon what he knows about who God is. So David's ready here to venture forth, but he recognizes that he cannot do it successfully unless the Lord himself goes with him. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Again, this is another evidence that this psalm is from the perspective of David's preparation for that great victory over the Edomites, it's mentioned in the heading. So David's recognizing, Lord, if you don't go forth with our armies, we're we're just going to lose, if God is not with us. And that's been the problem up until now, right? That was the problem on Mount Gilboa, when Saul lost his life, and Jonathan and his other sons. It's, it's that the Lord had departed from him. The Lord had refused to honor Saul's wicked leadership with his presence and blessing. And David is praying, Lord, let it be different now. We're acknowledging our dependence on you. We're acknowledging our need. We know that you alone can help us. And we confess that we belong to you. And so do our enemies. And so, oh, grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. In other words, mere mere human allies aren't going to do us any good in this situation. Um, This is kind of the other side of something David says, says elsewhere. Remember how David sometimes prays, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And he's acknowledging there that if the Lord is with him, then human beings can't ultimately threaten him. Human beings cannot harm him if the Lord is on his side. Well, this is the opposite of that. He's also recognizing if human beings can't ultimately threaten us, well, they can't ultimately help us either. We can't depend on them like we can depend on the Lord. It's only with God that we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. And this, of course, has been the hope of God's people from the very beginning, from the very first time that the Lord gave that mother promise back in Genesis chapter 3 in the act of cursing the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. And yes, Israel's heel has been bruised, we could say, by defeat, by the death of their king. Even David's heel, you could say, has been bruised repeatedly by Saul, by many others we've been looking at in the past several Psalms. But now what is the Lord about to do? Now the Lord is about to crush the head of the serpent under David's foot. Right? He's going to crush Israel's enemies. He's going to bring Israel into that period of peace and rest under their banner, their king. And he's just been preparing for them. And this, of course, again, this is just what the Lord has done for us. In Christ, You see this very clearly here. What the psalm is pointing us to see Christ himself actually knew. Think about Christ's own life and death. Christ knew the tragedy and the agony of being defeated and rejected. His defenses broken. The land literally quaking at his crucifixion and his body being torn open under the anger of the Lord. Jesus knew the full reality and the weight of verses 1 through 3 in his own life and death. He was made to see hard things as he staggered under the cup of the judgment of God. Not of course because he had sinned. Jesus What greater contrast could there be between than that between Saul and the Lord Jesus? Right? Jesus was not like Saul. He was not even like his Forefather David, who by the way, it's heartbreaking how soon after Second Samuel eight comes David's grave sin? All too soon after these big victories against Syria and Edom. But Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus was better and stronger, more righteous. Than both of them put together. And yet, he got verses 1 through 3. He underwent that defeat. He drank that cup for us. Why? Because it was in that way. That was the way that the Lord had planned to crush the serpent's head. To defeat The power of sin and death. It is through his defeat on the cross that his beloved ones were delivered, and that God, verse 5, gave us salvation by his right hand and answered us. Remember the very striking irony that John brings out in his gospel when Jesus says, when Jesus speaks of being lifted up on the cross so that he might draw all men to himself. He was lifted up and glorified even in that moment of his deepest humiliation. Because in that defeat, he was winning his greatest victory. Jesus was lifted up as our banner so that we might flee to him. Flee to Christ crucified and to him alone for refuge and for safety. Flee to him from the bow. But of course it gets even better than that because in Christ we not only see the defeat, but we see beyond that the resurrection. Christ has been raised from the dead never to die again, Paul says. Death no longer has dominion over him. Right? And so now, what is the Lord Jesus doing? Now the Lord Jesus is in heaven looking out upon his church around the world. And not only his church, but the entire cosmos, the whole universe... And as he looks out from his heavenly throne, he says, it is all mine. You all are mine. And all of that. And all of them. Everything. It's all mine, Jesus says. It is his. And he says, I'm going to wield all of my sovereign power and all of my exalted glory for the defense and the salvation of my beloved people and nothing is going to stand in the way of that salvation being accomplished. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Resurrection Orthodox Presbyterian Church is mine. Your family is his. Your soul is his. It's all his. You belong to him. Isn't that, after all, your only comfort in life and in death? That you are not your own, that you belong to him. You don't belong to yourself, you belong to Jesus. And he's ruling you and defending you even now. Vain is the salvation of man. Right? People will let you down. People will uh, harm you. Um And they'll come up hard against their limits and their ignorance and their foolishness, even those who are well-meaning, even those who are trying to be out for your good. They still will fail you, but Christ will not. Because it is Christ who grants you help against the foe in a way that never fails. Apostle Paul very end of the book of Romans gives that wonderful promise picturing for us the way that we share in the victory of Christ when he tells us that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet what better beautiful picture is there of how this last verse of the psalm applies to us it is he who will tread down our foes The Lord is going to crush Satan under our feet. Why is that? Because it's we belong to that defeated and crucified, yes, but also exalted, resurrected, and victorious Lord Jesus, who has tread down our foes already, who has already crushed the serpent's head, and now he is leading us onward in that victory that he has won behind him. With God we shall do valiantly. I want to kind of leave us with that. Do you ever wake up in the morning... And think, you know what? Today, I'm going to do valiantly. I'm going to do valiantly with God. Because I know that Christ has tread down my foes. And so I'm going to trust him today to help me. And through him, I am going to do valiantly. Now, if we just said that on our own authority... If we just said, I'm just going to muster it up inside me. I'm going to be valiant today. Well, that, would be, that would be foolish. That would be ridiculous. It would be arrogant. And it would never work. Right? We'd just fall flat on our face. We'd probably trip on our way out of bed and land on our noses or something and spend the rest of the day with a black eye. If not literally, surely, surely figuratively, that is the outcome every time. When we try to take that attitude ourselves. But well, this says, with God we shall do valiantly because of that gospel that I've just been recounting for you. Because of who Christ is and because he is your leader, your victorious king. Now in him, God is calling you and it is not an option for you. He is calling you to do valiantly, to be strong and courageous and do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. With your God you shall do valiantly. When you are confronted with some temptation and it's strong, and you really want to do it, but you know the Holy Spirit's saying, no, you're not supposed to do that. What would it look like for you to think, I am going to do valiantly in Christ against this temptation. I'm going to resist it because I am resting in everything that Christ has done for me, and through Him I can do valiantly. It's not a foregone conclusion that I'm just going to give in. When you face the sorrow and the loss and the bitterness of defeat of various kinds in this life, how might it comfort you to know God has set up a banner for me in Christ, not only for the times when things are going well, He set up a banner for me to flee to. And I'm going to flee to it now. And under him, even with all of this pain and loss, I'm going to do valiantly in his strength. I'm going to trust him to help, help me. I'm going to take courage. Because Jesus knows that feeling of defeat. But he also knows the victory that lies beyond it. And wherever I may be along the way, from one to the other right now, that's where he's leading me. That victory to come. It is he who will tread down our foes. Praise God, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it's not, not in us to do valiantly, Lord. We, we're naturally cowards. We're naturally weak and helpless. Sinners we can't get it right. We're not brave. We don't have a high tolerance for pain of any kind in ourselves. But Lord, with you, we know you're calling us to do valiantly, not because of anything in us, because but because of who you are, what you have done, and what you've promised to do for us in Christ. So we ask that you would give us that courage. Help us to see the truth of this psalm with the eyes of faith, to see how it points us to the Lord Jesus, our exalted King, our banner, and under that banner of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, give us the strength to do valiantly for you this week. And we ask this in his name. Amen.